reserve that for one day. So the crumpets come in packages of two sets of three. And so the question is, do we break into the second set or do we freeze them for our return from going to visit John? You know, this is a bone that I have to pick with the universe. It's like you go to a hardware store and you need wing nuts or molly bolts or something like that. And they package them in groups of three. I have never seen a project. Two, yes. Four all the time. I've never seen something that needs three of a thing like that. Is this the hot dog and the, and the bun argument all over again? It's just insane. Why don't you give me four of these things? If you're putting two on the left side, you're going to put two on the right side. Don't sell me three. It's insane. I'm sure it has to do with shipping weights and packaging and, and profitability or something, but ugh, drives me nuts. Three washers. Really? Really? course we know why we get our dim sum in threes that's a completely different issue of course no hey. why does dim sum come in threes because i believe it's lucky because if you do four four in chinese is sounds like death ah okay i can see that and i you know if you're going to call it a flight of something that i will accept three three consumables does you know you can handle that the same way you can handle anything but not hardware just say we have a place near us that does nashville hot chicken and they do chicken pieces or chicken fingers and i suggested they uh to somebody that they they do a thing where they get a chicken finger at each of the different you know hot temperatures from the mild to the extra hot and call it a flight of chicken <laughs> not one person has laughed when i've suggested that <laughs> I've tried it as two or three God times. God is my witness. <laughs> That's funny. I, I tried chicken sushi, but it didn't go over very well. Uh, Dave's hot chicken in Los Angeles. Yeah, that was a that was a revelation. I think they're everywhere else now, but that was every time I went to LA to visit my friend, I would stop by Dave's, clear out is my the why, for six months. Is the reason why it didn't go over very well is because Without wings, the chickens can't fly. Don't think so. It's because I keep asking people who I suspect are working very hard on minimum wage and they just want to get through the day. Where was the drum effect? We really need that. Bum, there, there's bum. Some, there, right. We could have used singers. a rim shot there. You're right. Yeah. Liberty. 
Courtney's not here. He's in Texas. Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn more about what we do, you can head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we spend time answering your questions about media and virtual events. And our second hour is typically something that we want to spend some more time on. And today, we'll be speaking to Keely Dunn, Master of Discord, as she shares with us her tips and strategies around creating and building community in Discord. So producers, this is a great time for you to put your questions into the chat, Imukana, for our first hour's questions and for our second hour questions. And you know what, Bill? I think it's time that we get this party started. Excellent. Happy holidays, Liberty. Great to see you this Thank morning. You. Same to you, Bill. Uh, John Foltz from Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania is going to start us off this morning. And here's his question. My internet provider touts a new two gig service, but my Ubiquity Dream Machine Pro is one gig. How would I take advantage of the extra speed from the ISP? Let's start with Tom. Oh, I'm really jealous. Two gig service. Uh, the UDM Pro, I have one of those. And it has SFP modules available. Uh, that stands for small form factor pluggable. So you get a little module and you can go all the way up to 10 gig. Cost you about 50 bucks. And John? I was uh, going to bring that up as well. That's a great answer. But the other thing to to look at is your uh, fine print of your service providers agreement. A lot of uh, service providers provide one gig wired, one gig wireless. So you need to make sure that that's not how they're defining it because otherwise you won't need to do anything. And Alex. Yeah. The, uh, I, it, it also, well, that's right. I think you're talking about Frontier. Frontier has, has got a new consumer um, thing that's two gigs, and I think AT&T has one as well. Uh, the other thing to look at is within the Dream Machine, whether it's a stateful limit. So basically using the Dream Machine's tools, you can only go up to one. Like Meraki has different ones that are 100, 100 meg or 500 meg or one gig. It's using their tools. There is a limit to the speed. And so you want to keep look at what that limit actually means in the Dream Machine. And in the chat, Jeffrey Powers says, set up another network. I'm curious about his response. How would that impact? Is he saying set up another network so that you can make use of that extra gig? Is that what he's yeah, saying? Yeah, you can you can you can actually bypass it. I've done this in the past because I have a my one of my routers is again stateful is only 500 megs, but I've got a one gig connection. And so we can have another network. You plug into that network or even use it as a separate connection to your computer. You can switch over which one is the primary and suddenly you have the speed. You just don't have protection or access to your VPN or and there's a bunch of other things that can happen there. It's not a great security way. It's not, not the most secure way of managing your network. Um, but if you need to get upload something or download something really big, uh, sometimes we do that or we have another computer that sits there that downloads things. I mean, the, the main reason that you need two gigs, in my opinion, is downloading, downloading big files when needed. Okay. And go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, Liberty, to answer your question, I think you can load balance two different networks together so you have that uh, or a failover 
but load balancing probably gets you more speed. I, and I probably, I don't know if that would work. I mean, I don't know if that would work well, um, in load balancing or, or falling over. I would keep, I would recommend keeping them separate networks. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't try to merge them together. Okay, next question. Next one is from Lois Richter, our friend in Davis, California. And Lois says, I understand that a USB hub can allow my MacBook Air to drive several USB devices out of a single port. How does the computer know which item it's talking to when they all share the same control channel? Mitchell? Ain't nothing but a party, a party line all the way down that USB. It's a serial device, so it multiplexes all the requests and they're all uh, earmarked for whatever uh, device there is. So you can stack as many as uh, it will allow you to. And Alex? Yeah, all of them have their own in individual IDs. So they're, they're making requests across that bus. And so it's a USB bus or a universal serial bus. And so all of them are making individual requests with individual IDs. So it, it's just a matter of them plugging in and, and just using the, using the rails together. Next question. Next question comes from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC. And Alexander says, what have you done in your studio to minimize setup for office hours every morning and reduce the anxiety of having everything perfectly configured? Great question, Alexander. Let's start with Jesse. I built the studio around not having to tear it down pretty much ever, except when we're taking pieces out on, on production. And the other thing I do is go in every morning with a plan to change one thing, like, uh, for example, changing the frame rate on the ATEM Mini or something like that, just so there's something to experiment and follow and see what happens with uh, one change a day. And one hour is usually enough to experiment with one change. John? Uh, after you do something a thousand and seven times, you get pretty good at it. So nothing ever changes. The, and the interesting thing about the the Focusrite product is my gain is all the way up. And so I never have to change it. It makes it easy. Camera doesn't move. My mic never moves. So I just turn it on and I'm in. Bill? And switching strategies. I have two Alation switch boxes that have master switches and then eight um Edison plugs in the back that that one switch controls. So literally when I come in in the morning, I hit two switches, the lower and the upper bank, and that turns on 16 uh, electrical components that are uh, tied to all my equipment. So it all comes up at once. The only thing, because I turn it off every night and um, those are uh, protected switches, then uh, I have to reconfigure uh, things like the ATEM in the morning, just reprovision it. It's not very complicated, but that makes things much easier. And Mitchell? Yeah, my Zoom room, as I like to call it, is a standing set. It's pretty much the same. The only thing I change um, is uh, lighting for office hours and lighting for just general uh, Zoom meetings. I don't have an on-air light when I'm meeting with clients and stuff like that. Alex? Yeah, I, I'm pretty much, this, is, this room is done, only does one thing. <laughs> so, so I highly recommend, if you can, to try to have a place where you don't have to break things down. I turn the lights off, I turn the monitors off. And leave the core stuff running so that I don't have to think about it. But usually I can be on in a very short period of time. And Harshid. With my lighting, I uh, memorize the temperatures that I've set my lights to. There's about four lights in front of me, one on above me. And then as far as my interface, it's uh, pretty much set to what it needs to be with the original sound on. And if I do turn it off, then I do have to turn it down because it gives me about 17 luffs. Um, other than that, uh, where my microphone is, the placement, the monitors, the, it all it's all static. It doesn't need to be adjusted much. So um, mainly just get the lights back into position and the Brio 
just a couple of times with Mickey, when we work in the morning, we might change the shot up a little, maybe a little tighter, maybe a little bit more loose, but that's about the only difference that we do. Next question. Next one comes from Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Tommy says, is there a calendar for special office hours events like space and the shows that are being covered? Alex? Yeah, the space is, is something that John manages. So he gives us up, updates about when that's actually going to happen. But everything else that we have scheduled for sure goes out in the email every morning. So if you're signed up for that, you should know everything we have planned that we're ready to talk about. And then we also have conversations typically, right, leading up to what people are working on and when those events yeah. are happening. So that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Just if you, But there's not any hard, hard schedule other than the one that we email out. <laughs> Next question. Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York says, updating my Zoom ISO setup with the Decklink 8 SDI output and Sonnet box. Is it worth getting an SDI version of the ATEM Extreme ISO or go with a 2ME constellation and convert those outs to HDMI and record on my existing HDMI Extreme ISO? Alex? If you think you're not going to go past eight inputs um, or if, you know, really remember that you may want other inputs that are going to be playback or graphics or or something else so just make sure that you have everything you need with that eight you have eight outputs from zoom but you'll be limited to those eight outputs for the for the switcher itself so just keep that in mind um if you're the, the one thing about that is that you're doing sti outputs so you're gonna have to convert somewhere <laughs> you have to make this all work now the issue that you're gonna have is that so you're gonna have to convert sti to hdmi or hdmi to sti in the way that you're talking about it um, the advantage of going into the um, the, the, the extreme ISO uh, SDI is that you have all those ISO records, um, and then you also have a, an interface that you can work with. Um, so if those ISO records are really important, I'd probably stick with the SDI version of the of the extreme. Um, I have to admit, at home, I'm very much considering getting a constellation because the the 2ME constellation. Um, specifically because I don't, I'm not, I, know, I just really find I'm not using the interface that much. I could probably get away with the stream deck and all that IO. 20 in, 12 out is is pretty, uh, pretty interesting to me. And I don't record a lot of ISO at home. Nigel? So it's a supplemental question to something Alex just said. Um, so I'm looking at the same configuration we're discussing here. And one thing that's really resisting this is the thought that I'm a completely HDMI world. And getting to SDI and back feels like I'm about to spend about $1,000 on converters. And do I go bi-direction? Do I go unidirection? Do I try and do it cheap? I, and that that's sort of throwing the decision-making. My guess is there's no real way around that or if I miss something. Yeah, there's no way around that. <laughs> if you decided, but I mean, so for my monitors, for the monitors that are not signal carrying you know so i'm not worried about you know it's a monitor i'm not trying to put it's not part of my core signal you can buy little cheap um hd or sti to hdmi converters that we that we just stick on to the back of the monitors um and then um so that's that's a relatively easy thing to do of course you need a bi-directional for your new year 6k cameras um and then uh yeah the computers are going to need you know the, the computers are typically going to need a uh um, um, and, and some kind of conversion. So you either convert the HDMI out or um, one of the things, I know this will sound painful, but for one of my computers, I'm thinking of getting a um, SDI box, a, a Sonnet with an SDI card because that gets rid of the orange dot. So the orange dot, if you're going to use a computer out and you want to get rid of the orange dot, you need to go through SDI. So that's the, um, and Apple's slowly closing that up. They're basically, if you're using a consumer connection to your computer, they're not giving you a professional output. 
And I think that's the, I don't know if that's the official uh, stance, but it's pretty close. And Mitchell. It's a small thing, but I vote for SDI. I have a hyperdeck that uh, also outputs alpha channel. Um, and when I convert uh, down from SDI to uh, HDMI, uh, the two converters do not synchronize. So when I when I sync that uh, signal into my HDMI input I, uh, extreme, um, sometimes the uh, the alpha channels drifting a little bit. So with SDI, I probably wouldn't have that problem. Yeah, and, and I I always say the last thing I would say there is connected to the um, whether you get the the, the big thing. Again, when you once you decide that that area, I mean, I think the SDI. That's why I'm slowly moving to SDI across the board again. <laughs> so it's just the HDMI. The the big thing is routing as well. If you decide you want to route, uh, have a router like a twenty by twenty or forty by forty router, um, you know, there's just not many solutions like that for HDMI. So that's another problem. That's another thing to think about. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas says the Microsoft Surface Pro has 32 gigabytes of RAM and an i7, but only Intel Iris Xe graphics, while the ASICS uh, ROG Flow Z13 has 16 gigabytes and an RTX 50, and he notes uh, 50 Ti slash 80 with the RTX graphics. Would the 16 gigabyte be enough for a blocker for Unreal Engine development? Alex? You know, I don't know enough about the PC side of things, but what what really matters is the is getting a um, a full. I mean, I, I and I don't know about this Asus. There, um, uh, sorry, that I got a columns in my head there. <laughs> so, um, uh, the uh, I, I would really be looking at the two or three series. You know, the the twenty eighties, thirty eighties, like need to be in your laptop. Um, and there is a version of those, I believe, but I wouldn't. I I'd be much more concerned about the GPU um, than than the C, than how much RAM you have. Let's see what John has to say. So I'm going to approach this from a. I'm not an expert on on this particular configuration, but I, what I do know is gaming, and gaming, uh, you're going to be blocked uh, uh, if you go under 16 gigs, but 16 gigs should be fine. I, I'm with what Alex says about the graphics card. Get the best graphics card you can in that configuration because that's going to be your limiting factor most of the time once you hit 16 gigs. Next question. Alexander Knight up next, back again and here on the panel with Vancouver, uh, from Vancouver. What is the panel's recommendation for a compact, reasonably priced multi-view monitor that supports frame rates other than 60 FPS? Alex? I think that a lot of the lily puts um, actually support other, a lot of different frame rates. And so they're very inexpensive. And um, I have almost never had a, a time when we plugged a signal into a lily put and didn't have it pop out again. I mean, we've not, not gone over 60, but everything under 60 has been successful. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next, and he asks, after th day three of no power at the rural house where I live, my aunt and I are looking at generators. Any recommendations for Brannons with monitoring and or control capability? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, the classic answer is Generac. You know, Generacs are the kind of the standard um, standard thing that you would use in this environment if you want a permanent a permanent solution. Also, if you're looking for a less permanent solution, you may want to look at things like Champion and other. There's a lot of other generators out there. If you're, you know, it just depends on how much you're trying to power in the house. Um, so, and how much noise you're willing to put up with. Go ahead, Nigel. 
So the other way to think about it, if you have the time and the money, is to go from the control side out. So find a find a solution that works for your house. There's something like the Savant power system that will work from your fuse box. It'll manage a generator. It will manage, um, you know, all the different types of power in your house from solar and everything, and will integrate it into a single system. And if you go from the control side, then you go and get the generator that works with that control system. Does it matter that he said, like, he put in brackets, like his rural house? Does that, I don't know, I'm just, that was like highlighted. Does that matter with him getting the generator? It shouldn't. Oh. It shouldn't, yeah. Okay. So. Bill? Well, I, I don't have much experience with whole house things, having lived most of my life in Arizona where uh, generators are not mission critical. Now, of course, the with so much of the country under really cold weather, this has become more of a safety issue, I think, than... Uh, than we ever thought before. Uh, I do know that if you are going to have a generator somewhere, be mindful of the fact that a lot of people uh, have health difficulties because they try to use generators the wrong way, particularly inside if they're a gasoline powered generator or things like that. And it's it's a bad solution there. Um, I just know that having one in my kit, because we used to shoot out uh, doors a lot in the desert where we needed power, was a great safety valve for needing power someplace. But there's so many kinds of heaters that can give you trouble. Just be very careful if you decide to go in the generator for emergency things. Study up on it before you just decide to do it. Good call. Next question. Ronnie Hoffsey in Tromso, Norway says, ideas for overhead ceiling grids for cameras, lights, speakers, and display. Single pipe, not triangle or square truss due to available height. What system types or brand is available in Euroland? Brand as do-it-yourself, steel versus aluminum, 30, 40, or 50 millimeter. Alex? I, I, I have a hard time trying to think through the through the millimeter part but exactly like how it converts to exactly what we use now what i have my my overhead is um, being done with maker pipe using emt rail which is a three-quarter inch um, which i believe is about 20 millimeters um you know there and it got a fair bit of weight on it i don't know if i put heavy lights onto it but it's something that i that i'm that i that i've got quite a few things that are pulling on it and it's i'm probably at its near max um, that's aluminum. Uh, you can get steel. You can get it uh, a thicker steel that that is going to be a lot more rigid. Um, but it's uh, something to think about. Now, once we get into larger grids, we typically use what we call speed rail. And uh, speed rail is a um, typically we're using one and three quarter inch speed rail uh, or one and a half inch speed rail. Um, and those are going to be in your kind of thirty to fifty or thirty to forty millimeter range. Um, you know, for for that speed rail. And there's a um, you know there. You know, there's not that many places that make that it's the connectors that get expensive the pipe in both cases are relatively inexpensive then finally if you want to manage monitors up the side of the wall um, those are the kind of things you use 80 20 and all of these things should be available um, internationally go ahead bill and I famously had my studio and had what I called an IFF studio rail system. It's just a different um, way to go rather than pipe. Pipe's great. And I love grids and things like that. But here's a part of my IFF studio rail system. And you can see that it's very sophisticated. It has a lot of uh, mounting points, has a lot of places and clips for cable and things like that. And you can actually curve rails around. It provides a lot of flexibility in being able to very quickly move something in and out of an area. Uh, 
if I was going to do another studio, I think I would find something close to this again, because it provides even more flexibility than pipe and drape, particularly you have these uh, rolling um, carriages that have brakes on them. So you can take a particular pole they make with it, pull that brake down, move it into position and lock it very simply from the floor. It also serves to get all your cables off the ground, which is one of the great things that a grid system over top of you can do, which adds a lot of safety, particularly if you're moving people in and out of a studio. So it's just another uh, another way to attack this rather than a fixed studio grid, grid of pipe. And Alex? And I think it depends on how much you're going to move things around. So I actually looked at the, the one that Bill has, and I, I very got very close because it's a really great system. The only thing I decided I wasn't going to change my my home studio very often. <laughs> so so I was if I was doing one client, I would absolutely look at that. If you're if you're going to change that studio over and over again, a different client, different shoot, different look, um, I think that getting something that's highly flexible, like what Bill's showing, is is probably more effective. If you're going to set and forget, then you might be able to save some money with the grid. Next question. Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware is up next here on the panel. Of course, Disney Plus is raising its subscription rate to $10.99 starting January 2nd. Are you considering dropping some of those services for the new year? John. When Disney Plus came out, I dropped Netflix, and I haven't regretted that decision. Um, I feel the prices, I mean, painfully increased because it almost doubled, but it's where I go to watch most of my television uh, that I watch. So that's why I'm going to stick with Disney Plus. I only really subscribe to that and uh, Apple and HBO. Uh, and I don't really plan on changing that. Nigel? So we have a slightly more organized approach to this, which is try not to have any more than three of these things at once. So we keep a note of the stuff we want to watch, and then we do hit-and-run subscriptions. So we do like Billions, so Showtime, we will, when we're ready to watch show, um, um, watch Billions, and Showtime has got all of them up, we'll subscribe for a month and turn it off. I, I know there's a lot of dislike for the Apple uh, Store, but I have to tell you one of the great things about the Apple Store is subscribing through the Apple Store because I can manage those subscriptions when I first did Disney Plus, I don't know how I subscribed to it, but I ended up with two subscriptions. I couldn't turn one of them off. You know, I, for, as a consumer, that's the simplest way to manage it is through the Apple TV system. Nigel, did you say you have a hit and run approach to it? Is that what yeah. you said? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, someone says there's a great series on so-and-so. So I, we keep a list of all the great series. We have them slightly, it's a bit anal, slightly organized by provider. And when we're looking for the next series, we subscribe for a month, watch them all, and shut the subscription down. That makes perfect sense. Alex? Yeah, I, I I am thinking about it. I mean, I don't have that many. I kind of stopped. So I think I have Netflix and HBO. And of course, I have the Apple, the big whatever, the Apple One or whatever they call it. So I have all of that. And then I have um, one other one. But like when Paramount and other folks came out, I just didn't subscribe because I was like, oh, they're too late. <laughs> like I'm already in. Um, if I decide to add Paramount, I will probably, I'm thinking about adding Paramount most because I'm a Star Trek fan. And I'm, I I've, I think that I've decided that I, the Star Trek might be more important to me than uh, Netflix. So that's kind of the, um, that's kind of my math right now is that, but I'm not looking to leave Disney anytime soon, mostly because of the behind the scenes. I'm kind of tired of hero films. Um, so, so I, I don't really watch a lot of those anymore. I really enjoyed Andor. Um, so I think the Disney, but the behind the scenes, Disney stuff is really good. <laughs> I hope they do a lot more of that. 
Go ahead, Mitchell. I like Nigel's uh, concept of three, and I agree with uh, Alex on his choices. Uh, Apple will always be the one that I like because I like the way they curate. And also, you can get in and rent or buy um, series uh, from other networks without having to buy that network. So that's kind of neat that you can do that. Um, right now, I'm liking uh, Paramount Plus because of what they're offering. I have Disney. Um, I'm not so happy with the other choices out there, whether it's Hulu or Epics, or they just got rebanded to uh, MGM Plus or something like that. So I think that uh, Netflix needs to watch out because there's too much uh, garbage on Netflix. Go ahead, Bill. And as a producer of commercials that run on all these networks, I think I'm pretty fortunate in that I get to subscribe to the, anything that our spots are running on as a business expense. So uh, I'm not having to pay for them personally, but it is an important thing because I got to tell you, it's getting more and more complicated. We had spots running on Hulu uh, starting about maybe a year ago. And getting the correct spots uploaded in the correct format into their system was one of the most complicated things I think I've been through in my whole career. Now they're wrapped in with Disney and um, what is it, Showtime, something else. There's another little corporate bundle. And so it, this constantly shifting landscape that I have to produce content for means that I can't live without any of them because I've got to be able to look at what I'm running and see if it's uh, if it's getting through successfully, if I've encoded it wrong or right. So I got way too many subscriptions, but there's a reasonable business purpose for it. Bill, I feel the same way as you with the, you know, being knowing what's happening in the industry and, and having it from a business side, but from a personal side, where I've got an eight-year-old daughter, so we'll be sticking, we'll be sticking with Disney. But as you shared, Mitchell, just looking at what some of the content that's coming out on some of the other platforms, like I see Peacock kind of gaining, gaining some steam. Hulu has a lot of comedy documentary stuff, but thankfully I'm also on some family plans. So that is very helpful. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. And I think that What's interesting is now that more and more for me, the non-fictional content is what's keeping me on different networks. So if if that stuff doesn't keep on increasing, I feel like I'm probably going to drop out of a bunch of them. So I'm not. I'm. I've become less and less interested. I feel like the the writing for many of the networks has become thinner and thinner and thinner. They just they're stretching the current talent too too wide. Um, and I and I find that I'm just not interested in the storylines. But there's tons of great like. On Apple, I don't know if I've watched any fiction. I watched the beginning of Foundation, <laughs> like, and that was like four episodes in. I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. And um, the, uh, but I find that like the, you know, see the, there was one about Mark Rober's um, see the music or whatever or the sound, you know, which I just thought was unbelievable. Um, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was really really fun to watch. Um, and I've seen like the sound exploder on Netflix is probably what I keep on thinking. If they just put out more of those, I'd be happy. But um, but I, I find that those are a lot of things that keep me on a given network, and I don't know if they're doing enough of that. And um, it's actually interesting that nobody mentioned Amazon Prime in there. Because we all have it. We have Prime. Um, like, you all, everybody has Prime, so no one thinks about it because they, they, we all, we, you know, I mean, I, I, you, I, get free, I get free shipping, and, and it also comes with movies. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so Amazon point, is point. the best business model. Like, no one thinks about subscribing to Amazon Prime because we already because, have yes, it. It's, it's a, yeah, good it's point. Like, given. Next question. Gordon Greisbeck of Winnipeg, Canada says, I was a bit nonplussed by my boss's adamant position yesterday that absolutely nothing is absolute. I assure you that the fact that I am typing this now means I absolutely am alive. <laughs> Gordon. 
Go ahead, Alex. I, I would think I would need to have context over, over that conversation. Um, that it sounds like a very typical like someone asking, trying to nail a boss down, and a boss saying, "I just don't know." Like, and the thing I think that it's hard when people are managing projects. I will say that that um, as a as someone who has managed a lot of people, when someone's trying to nail me down on an absolute, when I still know that what I know, there's a whole bunch of variables that could change that are related to that. Uh, I will say it's pretty irritating as a manager. <laughs> So, so sometimes you get, you get something that you just say, well, nothing's absolute because I don't know yet, you know, because I know all the things that still could change underneath whatever I'm working on. And Nigel? Yeah, I was going to say the only thing that was absolute in that scenario is they didn't want to tell you something. Um, and that was pretty, pretty much, you know, I, I've always had a view that there were three things or things I could tell you, things I couldn't tell you and things that I knew, but I still couldn't tell you. And and I think he did want to tell you something. I would also or, or, refer to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which reminded us the man that ruled the universe believed everything was untrue, but was later found to be lying. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. Or he, or, or he just didn't know. Like I think a lot of times we had I had we had a big upset with a lot of our contractors because we would have stuff coming in and things are changing constantly. And they'd be like, exactly where am I supposed to be? I'm like, I don't know yet. I don't like I won't know. I like I can I know that you need to be in this vicinity where, where exactly you have to be. And that's not it's not coming from me. <laughs> it's just that it's not done. It yet, is what it know? is. Yeah. It is what it is. And 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 I think that the most uh, the, the people we hired the most were people who just kind of swung with it, you know, just, just kind of like, okay, you know, they just, they just kind of manage that, that process. But some, some folks don't like, uh, you know, uncertainty and that that's a it's hard thing in production to not want uncertainty. And coming in from the community, um, Tim says the variables are absolute. So yes, exactly what you just said. Um, and then Roscoe says there are no absolutes other than this statement and wrapping with JJ. He said, you can't handle the truth. Next question. <laughs> Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas says, in my previous setup, I had an Eaton 5P UPS, that's 1.5 kilovolt amps, along with trip light isolation transformer. If I use an online double conversion uninterruptible power supply like the Eaton 90S, 9SX or 9PX, I wouldn't need an isolation transformer. Is that correct? Go ahead, Alex. I believe that is correct. Although I would probably still put one in because <laughs> it means that the UPS could protect you, but it also means that you'll lose it. So I think I would rather have the isolation transformer in there um, either way. You don't, I don't think you need it, but I would still put it in. And coming in, Mickey mentions in the chat, correct, though, I still use Furman's in my racks for power sequencing and glorified switch PDUSs. Next question. Ronnie Hossi of Tromsø, Norway is up next and says, so what is the favorite camera mounts used on desks or hanging from a ceiling and or a grid? Just a magic arm and a super clamp or something more advanced and smooth? Mitchell? I like the uh, the arm from Slick. They make a great uh, table-mounted uh, clamp that clamps in. It's very solid. Uh, I've got a magic arm on it. Well, i got a few things here I can show you. I've got my uh, boom from my microphone, the magic arm from my confidence monitor, and then the camera is up here out of frame. Uh, but basically, it's very solid. So um, I like that. They call it their creator bundle but uh, you can also get an arm off the top of it. So I uh, highly recommend it. I, I went searching, looking for a very solid mount to go on a very solid desk, and that one worked out. S-L-I-K. John. I, uh, there's two types of Manfrotto super arms. 
There's one that has a, a lever on it that locks the thing into place. And mine's so high and back, it's hard for me to do that. The other one has a twist knob that's probably more convenient. One's newer than the other design. And Bill. I, so you're in the realm of grip gear, and there's so many pieces of grip gear that when you go to mount something on a ceiling, uh, in, in, after this many years in the industry, for me, I look at it and go, what are the pieces that are going to bow? Uh, that, you know, that arm that John was talking about, I've had a number of them over the course of the years. I've had both styles, those with the twist knobs and those with the lever. The lever is interesting in that there's a little uh, metal fitting on the other side. You can loosen or tighten the lock point of that by manually manipulating that thing. And this is the thing, all these clamp types, you know, we've got a Mafer clamp, super clamps, uh, Cardellini clamps. They all were designed because somebody ran to a problem of fixing something in a stable fashion to something, whether it was the edge of a desk or a rail overhead or a uh, drop ceiling or something like that. And there are all sorts of tools in our industry for facing each of those situations and using the right tool to give you as robust a mounting point as you need without getting so much heavy grip gear that you stress the actual connection. Like I wouldn't use a magic arm and a big Mafer clamp on a, on a drop ceiling. Cause it's just too heavy along with the camera and it might just pull down the, the suspension wire of that. So unfortunately there's no simple answer to this. You really have to just look through the catalogs, realize all the tools that are available and try to figure out at what class support is the right class for this load. Because a camcorder, a small camcorder or a small camera is going to take a whole different mounting system than a robust, large beta cam kind of thing, which needs the most robust hanging mount you can possibly manage for it. And Alex. Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways to approach this. It depends on how temporary it is. For most temporary things, we've used the the the, the magic arms. Uh, I prefer the the wheel as opposed to the lever. Um, I find the lever drives me a little crazy. I have I own both of those. Um, the um, but the and those are for basic things. Remember, if you're going to start doing that with your camera, really think about putting your camera in a cage. Uh, that way, you can mount to lots of different places, and you're not putting a lot of pressure on one part of the camera. The camera is not really built to hold its whole weight. Uh, with a quarter 20 on the top it may have a top thing that you can mount things to it but it's not designed to be hanging the camera that way and so by putting it inside of a cage you can now i put almost all my cameras in cages um that way i can just sit sit there and just apply things to wherever i need to and and also the cage is the thing that protects the camera as well the the other thing to think about in that um in that process is how long you're going to leave it there if you can do it a, a, for a long time you may want to think about dropping something down from your let's, let's say you have a, a grid you drop something down from that grid um, and then you're going to bring two poles down from that grid and then you're going to put a cheese plate across the bottom and then you may mount a tripod head to it. That's going to give you your pan tilt and and leveling and everything else that you want. So if you put a ball mount underneath that cheese plate and some cheese plates actually have a hole for the ball mount right in the center. So basically what you'll do is you'll you'll mount it on either side. You've got a, a mount on the center for a, a 100 millimeter or 75 millimeter ball drop it down and now you can you can stiff it out and and get it just where it needs to be and then now you still have pan tilt and so those are things if you're doing something more permanent i wouldn't really use an arm i use we use the arms for something temporary and just bringing in guy makes a, a good point in the chat where he says before investing in a bunch of grip gear think about if you'll ever go to a teleprompter in the future Pro the prompter will have its own system well and 
and to guys uh, point, I'm going to be building a tell. I will, we'll show you guys when I, as I get a little further, I'm spending a little bit of this week designing it, but I'm going to build a teleprompter that hangs from my, <laughs> I built a teleprompter from scratch that hangs from my, my grid. So I want it, I want to get off the ground. I also couldn't find a teleprompter that I liked. <laughs> so I'm just going to, I'm just going to construct one. It's just a piece of glass at 45 degrees or 90, yeah, 45 degrees. So. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Next question. Next one comes to us from Chami Chance again from St. Paul, Minnesota. Is there a spot on Discord where remote cart builds are discussed? What are the core elements that would be required? I'm thinking of building a tank for the Oshkosh show. Go ahead, Alex. We should put like a place where we, we post. I don't think there is one right now, but if someone's listening, they can do that. Uh, somewhere where we talk about remote builds and we put some behind the scenes. We talk about what we're working on. I think that there's a whole section in there that wants to be made. So we should de definitely take a look at that. Um, I would not recommend a tank for Oshkosh because the number of people is so um, heavy. I think getting through the crowds would be a challenge. Bill? And I'm not sure. I, I don't know of any on Discord. I know that Facebook has been around longer in that space, and there are some Facebook groups. And if you do a search on grip and rigging in Facebook, you'll probably find a number of groups who have discussion, uh, probably going back years and a lot of stored knowledge on that. So I might look there if you're still on that, that service. Next question. Next one comes from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. And Vincent says, if it's true, and if so, is it true? And if so, where in the Office Hours Discord are the links and info archived from Mukana? There is. There's a chat. Is it Office Hour Chat Links? I think that that's the name. Somebody yep. can correct me if I'm wrong. But yes, there is one there. And hopefully someone also in the chat will post that for you as well. As best we can. As best yeah. we can. Right. <laughs> Or tag you in Discord. Yeah. So hopefully you're there. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia says, when I replace the flooring in my apartment, I want to have a slightly raised floor where I can run cables underneath. I saw on behind the scenes twit where they had a modular uh, floor panels, but I can't remember the make. Any suggestions? Alex? I'm, I can't remember the make. I, I, have to, I, have to look. I, I had researched this and figured them all out. I have to go back and look at my notes. This came up a little too fast. Um, but I will. Um, but it, Alex, you're looking at doing it. You, just, you want to fill your whole floor. Yeah, so I'm going to be replacing the laminate flooring yeah. here, and I'm just trying to figure out a better solution where I can have, you know, I can pull cables, have a little panel that flips up and pull cables through that sort of stuff. There's a couple different heights. My recommendation is three inches, at least two inches and preferably three inches up if you can afford to in, from a height perspective. Um, the, the reason for that is that there's ones that are one and a half inch and it just, you just end up, it just ends up being really frustrating, you know, snaking things through it. Um, I, you know, the, obviously if you have a lot of ceiling and a lot of room, they have ones, the ones that you're talking about that kind of pull up whole panels, oftentimes are a little thicker. They're six, eight, 12 inches high. The ones that are really small, you're really still going to kind of snake things through, but it's going to be still underneath. It's got usually the openings are in the corners and you can pop them open. Um, and there's a lot of different configurations. They are really great. <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, there's the next time I, I rebuild my office, I'm going to put them in. I, from a cost perspective, I chose to wait one more time. I was going to spend money on different things because it was going to cost me about $2,500, $3,000 to put the raised floor in. And so I was just kind of like, ah, I'll wait for one, one more iteration um, to be sure I want to do it. But I, but I think that um, they protect the floor, obviously, but they also, um, it just really makes a big difference. We, we just snaked some 
fiber through somewhere that would have been almost impossible to get to if we didn't have a race floor. And Bill? Um, so when I converted a hay barn into a studio, the, the issue I had, I tried to do this uh, in my plans for the whole studio floor to do rays so I could do cabling underneath it. But I ran across a couple of things that really kind of stopped me from going that direction. One of them was the interface for doors. You're going to have to, if you're raising the studio floor above the level that the doors are set for, you're either going to have to cut the doors so that they can open across that raised floor, or you're going to have to find some complicated system of making the doors all uh, open outward because of that difference in floor level. Um, also, I, it turned out that even if I designed the floors robustly, they became drums and people walking across them made a lot of noise. And I wasn't expecting that in our tests. So I ended up uh, raising only the floor of the active area and putting a little lip around it so that a camera, if we had a camera on wheels above it, it wouldn't fall off, but most of the time my cameras on wheels stayed below on the lower floor area and the stage which was raised was the only area that had that space underneath it. I know we're thinking of these like computer rooms, but in studio situations where you have live mics, you have to think about these sound things and, and stuff like this. So it, I, I took a lot of time and I eventually said, no, I don't want to raise the whole floor. I just want to raise the save section. And that is just going to be to define where we're going to have talent shooting up there. For the rest of it, it was too much engineering for me to mess with. And Alex? And the ones that we've used are rubberized and they they kind of defeat some of the things that 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 bill was worried about which is that you don't really hear them you know they're actually softer than the floors that you have but bill is spot on that you you if you use any kind of metal furnishing metal pins they're going to raise it up you're going to you're going to hear it you know so you're going to hear something because of the, just the way that that resonant the resonance works but the rubber ones or rubberized versions of those uh, tend to be a lot quieter hopefully that helps alexander Awesome. Next question. Darren Carrillo looks like from Dallas, Texas is up next. I have about nine terabytes of data stored on two Dobro 5N2s that replicate with one another. Once a month, I back up to AWS. I'd like to diversify away from one of the Do Drobos. What does the panel use for local storage? Synology? Synology? Go ahead, John. I, in fact, do have a Synology. It's a DS418. Uh, it has about 32 terabytes of storage in it right now. It uh, works fine. I probably don't utilize it as much as I should or all the features. Uh, but yeah, it seems to work great for my, me and my needs. And Tom? Yes, when I got that letter from Drobo in July, uh, interestingly enough, Synology also introduced the 1522 Plus. The 5N2 you'll find is old technology. It's more than five years old since it was released. Uh, also with Drobo going chapter 11, you probably need to get away from there. So something like the Synology 1522 plus. And Alex? One that I'm <clears throat> circling is the OWC Flex uh, 1U4. Um, and that that I I've been thinking about upgrading, you know, and getting a couple more drives, and I was for my home, and I've been thinking about getting this one because it has a PCI card slot. So I'm doing a little bit of research, and if it'll take a Duo or a, you know one of the Black Magic cards, the idea that I can hook one of my computers up to that and also use it as a graphics um, playout uh, is exciting to me. Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael up next. During yesterday's uh, CBS NFL broadcast, they had a BTS segment behind the scenes inside the NEP truck with the crew waving to the camera. How would they have patched the extra camera into the system along with avoiding the trip hazard with a bulky cable? Mitchell? Um, it's probably the easiest place in the world to put a camera because you've got all that uh, capability and huge routers. So, you know, even a simple small marshal could stick up in a the corner there and uh, point at the uh, crew along the line. And uh, that could be stuck in the ceiling or just taped above the racks. It's no problemo. And Alex? Yeah, and th- there's, there's also... A- couple wireless cameras that most of these football games <laughs> so so be you know i don't you wouldn't probably need to cable anything you just uh drop the tra- transmitter there so you could do it either way but as as mitch said there's probably there's probably very few places in the world that are easier to connect a camera in many 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 places uh into um than a than a broadcast truck next question Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. I haven't seen camera manufacturers or anyone go into great technical detail about the drawbacks if any of leaving your camera on 24-7. Assuming the LCD screens can go into standby to prevent burn-in, what does that do to the sensor over time? Alex? Uh, I the, the biggest problem you have is if the, if the it's the it's the panel on the back. The LED on the back will go bad. So it'll, it'll if it's left on forever, it will just slowly wear out. Uh, I haven't seen any. I've left some cameras on for a very, very, very long time, years, um, and uh, haven't seen any real effect on the sensor or pretty much anything else in the camera except for the LCD screen on the back, which I have found with the Black Magic, um, uh, with the Black Magic six Ks, uh, I've seen some some uh, some issues with the, with the monitor. Yeah, you know, as sensors and the cameras get bigger, heat is an issue. I remember I was considering for a brief period of time the Scion cameras uh, for use back when I lived in Arizona. And when I looked at it, I realized that they had actually a gap behind the sensor for airflow for heat. And I thought, that's probably not the best idea for shooting in Arizona in the summer when it could be 115 to 118 outside because uh, those sensors are going to overheat. And in fact, uh, liquid cooling and things like that have been built into some cameras just to take care of sensor heat. So I would worry about that um, leaving on 24-7. I can't imagine. Heat's never good for electronics. And I think leaving a chip active 24-7, unless you know that's absolutely missing critical, probably wouldn't be a good idea, at least on the bigger cameras. And Tom? I've got the Blackmagic 6K, and I did leave it on 24-7, and after about 11 months, had a problem with that back LCD. Probably should have dimmed it down a lot more than I did since I wasn't running around to the back of the camera, but uh, yeah, that's a problem. And Jesse? I had always assumed that uh, dead pixels were a result of lots and lots and lots of miles on the sensor plate. Am I completely wrong about that? Alex? Uh, not in uh, CCDs. Yeah. But, but not so much with, uh, CMOS. We haven't seen that, uh, with CMOS cameras of having that heat is a problem. So where you see dead pixels is you heat the camera up a lot and you keep it in a hot environment and we see more dead pixels. So, so that dead pixels are more of a heat issue than a, than a, uh, at least that's been our experience. Um, I don't have any scientific proof, but, but, but what, what we find is a, a camera put under a lot of sensor heat, um, can, um, can show more dead pixels out. Leaving them on for a long period of time hasn't, we haven't seen any dramatic increase. 
And for our producers, we have a couple more minutes before we get to the top of the hour and our guest comes on. So if you have any questions that you want to add to the chat, we will be more than happy to answer them. Next question. Alexander Knight's up next from Vancouver, BC, and he's asking about under un uninterruptible power supplies. And he notes, has anyone tried a cheap UPS, such as this one on Amazon, and he has a link below, uh, with a 27,000 milliamp hour battery? It has various 5 volt, 9 volt, and or 12 volt outputs. Go ahead, John. So I haven't looked at or haven't used this particular UPS before. But I'm working IT. We deal with UPSs all the time. I have some concerns about it. My main concern is it's a lithium-ion battery from a company I've never heard of before. Uh, I'm not disparaging the company. It could be a fine company. But what you really you want to use lithium-ion batteries where weight is a factor. If you're using this as a portable UPS go with lithium ion. If you're not using it as a portable UPS and it's going to sit in a cabinet or a desk somewhere and just stay there, then you're going to want to stick with a more traditional lead acid type battery. And the reason for that is you don't want what we call a spicy pillow uh, or a swollen lithium ion causing a fire hazard. Uh, what, uh, with, you know, the risk of that, whereas lead acid is a really over 100-year-old technology, it's been around forever, and it's a very stable thing. It does weigh a lot more. So if you're looking at portability, that's a factor. But otherwise, I, I, it's a commodity device, really, the, the batteries are. So, you know, there's got to be a reason why this one's so much cheaper than the others. And it just concerns me. Mm, good point. Bill? John, I'm putting you on notice that Spicy Pillow is going to be my next band name. Just wanted to let you know that. <laughs> I've never heard that term before, and it's charming. <laughs> Next question. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas says, uh, when I had the Eaton 5P 1.5 kilovolt uh, UPS connection to an 1800-watt triplite isolation transformer, the wiring in my former house heated to the point that it raised the temperature upstairs significantly. That can't be good. Uh, what would cause this, and how do I avoid it? Alex. Wires getting hot is not a good thing. <laughs> like, like you should, that should never happen. Uh, that means your gauge is too small. So you need to, you know, if you're pushing a lot of power through a cable, uh, you need to make sure that the, the gauge is, is uh, wide enough that it can move, that it's at, it's a, it's becoming a resistor, it's getting hot. And if it gets much hotter than that, you have a lot of other problems other than power. So yeah, you should, you need a larger gauge wire and you should manage this with an electrician. <laughs> like not, not yourself. This is not a yourself thing. Yeah. That last part. Yeah. The electrician. Thank you, Alex. Yeah. Next question. Ronnie Hofsey in Tromsø, Norway is in next with app suggestion to visually check, check the lip sync offset on a video. Needs to be really quick, like opening an app, filming the screen, marking the video and on the audio and having the differences shown in frames and or milliseconds. Alex? Well, the the big way to do this, <laughs> the managed way of, of doing this is using it, what's called Matchbox. So Matchbox is the really quick, not cheap way to manage this process. And so what a Matchbox does is it basically produces a, a video signal and an audio signal that you run through the entire path. When you open it up, it just gives you a number. It says you're off by 163 milliseconds or you're off by whatever it is, but it will tell you exactly how far you're off and it'll tell you within a couple seconds. And so that's the way that production handles 
um, offsets the way less people, we don't have the money for that. Um, you can have someone go up and clap or we oftentimes take once. They just need to clap once if you're doing, if you're, if you're going to manage the, the, the audio on the other side. Um, but we will, uh, we will walk up with a slate, you know, just a, cl a clapper and just walk up, turn the camera on. You really want to get it at the very end. So even I prefer to get the HLS segments out of the encoder myself. And then you just slap it and you walk off the, walk off the stage. You take, you open up again, preferably a, a, a segment from a, from the HLS um, encode, because that tells you everything about how it got through the other end, but you can record at the very last minute too. Open it up in Final Cut or open it up in Premiere or whatever you want to open it up and look at what the offset is between the audio signal and the video when the slate closes exactly and you'll know exactly how much to correct your audio for um, for your show. Now, if we're going to, if we don't have that ability and someone actually has to stand up there on stage, do not have them do the weird clapping thing. Well, if you're in front of a bunch of stage people, then do it because they think it's important. And so you do it, as, but it's, it's really theater. Just clap 10 times and they'll be happy. But what matters is people using P words. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers because you can only say P and your your lips have to go in a certain way to make that actually happen. Um, and so that is a, uh, um, so that's what we use there and have people just, we have actually a, a monologue that's full of P's that someone reads um, for us that one of our PAs wrote. wrote um, and, uh, and that we can usually dial it in watching it within about a minute. So just having that dialogue. So then that way, that your team has enough time. They don't have to like keep going back to the top. Yeah, it's long enough that by the time you get to the bottom, I, I know what it is. <laughs> okay. We dial it in, you know, and, and then the other thing you want to do is get access during rehearsals if you can. So if you if you have something going on in rehearsals, you can sit there and just watch it the whole, I mean, like we'll just watch rehearsals and constantly dial in if we don't, if we don't get a chance to get up on stage. Sometimes because of time, you don't get up there to, to do that. So that's the other way we do it. Copy that. Next question. Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas says, what vendors do you prefer for building custom patch panels? Mitchell? A while back, I used to use uh, ADC audio patch panels. They had a nice uh, uh, quarter-inch uh, front TRS, and in the back, they had a uh, punch block, which was kind of cool, and you could normal them through there and do all kinds of stuff. But nowadays, uh, TechNec makes uh, custom panels for you, and MarkerTech, so they're convenient and easy. Bill? Yeah, I've been with Marker Tech forever for those kinds of things. They have a pretty big division in their main office that does custom patch panels. I will say it's been sad. Uh, Marker Tech used to be one of the great catalogs of all time when it showed up in all five pounds of it in your uh, mailbox. And you could sit there and just wander through page after page after page of so many video and audio problem solvers. Sadly, all those catalogs are going online now. And I just don't think it's the same thing. Sitting in front of my computer for another six hours to go through the catalog is nowhere near as much fun as it was to get the physical paper catalog. But oh, well, life changes. It does. Alex? You can still request the catalog, just in case you're wondering. It's out of reach over here, but there's a handful of ones that I like sitting around in Sweetwater, B&H, Uline, uh, and uh, Marker Tech, I think, are the ones that if I just want to have like a little dream time and think about it. Uh, we build our own custom patch panels. So if we're going to build something, usually we just get them as open open areas and we, and we, and we, we put them together. Um, otherwise, we get pretty standardized ones from BitTree. BitTree are where we get our, our, our standard patch uh, panels. Those are 12G patch panels. Next question. Alex Lindsay, who is that? From Novato, California, says, is anyone playing with Mid Journey? Alex, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Mid Journey? 
did I? What is Mid Journey? You know, yeah, Mid, mid Journey. Uh, mid Journey is uh, the it's the largest. I, I think it's a good prep for our our, our second hour discussion. It's the largest uh, Discord community in the world. It is uh, six and a half million, I think, people in dis- in, in it right now, um, as as opposed because it, it broke last week. <laughs> and I was like, how could it break? And then I looked at how many people I was like, how does it work? <laughs> like, and so and not only is it anyway, so mid journey, uh, for those listening, uh, we're going to talk about it tomorrow in details, a whole second hour on it. Um, what it basically is, is one of these AI art tools. And we're going to talk a little bit we've talked about it in the past, we're gonna talk about it some more. But basically, it basically has a um, you can for free, just go into their Discord community and start typing things into their bot. And their bot will sit there and make you pictures. You say, I want to see Santa Claus. Like if you, um, you know, you put in something crazy that says, uh, I want to see, or minions, I want to see minions that from Roman times, and you get something that looks like that. Or you say, I want Santa Claus as a Pittsburgh Steeler, and you get something like that. Um, you say, I want to see the minions cross the Delaware, and you get, you know, more. we were playing with minions earlier in the day. I want a, a, um, uh, I would like a cyberpunk Millennium Falcon and you get something like that. And if you sm- misspell Millennium Falcon, you get something like that. Um, so, so those are the kind of things that you can, you can sit there and, and type, type in words and get out art. Um, and, uh, so anyway, we're going to talk a lot more about it, um, in the, uh, in the second hour of tomorrow, but I thought it'll be, be a fun little preview. So, um, anyway, so yeah, go ahead. Okay, John. So I played with it a bunch until I ran out of my free uh, (laughs) images. There is a limit of, I believe, 25 free ones. Uh, maybe you a little have bit to more pay after that. That's that's I why know, I'm getting rid of. Right. That's why I'm getting rid of Netflix so I can pay for Mid Journey. Already got rid of Netflix to play for <laughs> Disney. That's, ah. that's so good. But it's great for making character art for. I'm in role playing games, so if you need a character art or need uh, art for your games, it's perfect for that. Uh, and I just found it very useful, and I probably will subscribe again. But right now, I, I, I'm going through withdrawals. <laughs> oh, and you can add a uh, a mid journey channel to your own Discord server, and I've done that oh. for mine. Oh. I see, I see. Katie I know Alex head. needs to do that. To yes, <laughs> <laughs> Nigel. So, like uh, John, I ran out of uh, my free time, uh, but and I also ran out of daylight because that was uh, sucking up my life. So, it is definitely a hole that you got uh, dragged into. Um, I'm sorry I can't make the session tomorrow. I'm on my way to have lunch with John. Um, but I will tell you what I was starting to play with is could I... So I have to do presentations. I know we all hate them. They're the end of the world as we know. But I started replacing my charts with images created in mid-journey. So it's like because you can concatenate lots of different things and it generates an image, it's actually a really good way of building, I found, of building a presentation that tells stories, because the best way to use a presentation, of course, is not to present the chart, but to tell the story of the chart. Uh, You can actually have something that really dramatically illustrates it. I will tell you, you'd be really careful with faces. Um, when you do groups, some of the faces look like they're from a horror movie. So we have to be a bit careful with that. And I think Alex said yesterday that also hands can be hands. a bit miserable. So but fingers. Yeah. But but other than that, it's just a great way to build content that tells mm-hmm. stories without you having to use words. John, real quick. Humanity's over. The overlords are taking over. The AI overlords are taking over soon. And Alex. 
I, for to give you an example of how I use it, I, at the last minute, I decided to send people cards, just, just mostly my family, just cards. And I just had some of those Santa ones. I gave, I made about 20 different Santa clauses. And, um, and so I just sent them out as, but it was a card, like my, my brother runs a golf course. So he was Santa golfing another, you know, as my sisters are photographers. So I had Santa taking pictures and I, you know, you could just keep on asking Santa to do all these different things. Um, and, and it was just really fun, but, but I, I do think I love Nigel's idea of using the presentations. I, I would not want to be in the stock image market um anymore <laughs> so like that, i would get out of that business so this is like the chat gpt for art if you think about technically chat gpt is the mid journey for text because it came, it came older. Yeah, yeah copy that because i remember I, I pulled it up and i was like oh i open you know when you have too many tabs i opened this last week to try it and it was just one of those open tabs so i'm excited to hear from keely because then i'm going to be playing around with it a lot more well, thank you so much, producers, for bringing those questions to us for our first hour as we get ready to switch over and talk about all things Discord. And we'll probably have some of this AI conversation as well with Keely Dunn, founder of Discord for Creators. Welcome, Keely. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am absolutely stoked. And before we get started, Alex Dockrock says hi. Oh, great. Awesome. Great he's he's my mentor. So oh, he's great. he sends his regards from Japan. And uh, uh, yes, good day to you. Sir. Every time I see him scheduled for one of the shows that I'm in, I'm like, yes. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> it's going to be a good one. Yeah, yeah. Sounds great. So Keely, can, let's, let's start from the beginning because you have a great story of how you got started with Discord. And if you could start with us there, because it's it's been... What was it? It started with the field hockey um, umpires. Yes, it, it. I and I know you're all saying we've heard this story before. A field hockey umpire educator turns into a Discord expert. Man, we're so bored of this. But yes, I had got. I, I was brought in kicking and screaming by members of my community. I had a struggling Facebook group that I was trying to use to provide educational services like mentoring meetings and watch parties and things like that. And it was crickets. It was so bad. I I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't already know about Facebook groups. And one of my more senior members of my community uh, from the Netherlands, he was saying, you know, you really need to start a Discord server. And I said, mm, that sounds great. What's Discord? And he showed me and I immediately looked at him and, said, mm. and looked at him, obviously, metaphorically, because we're on the Internet. Right. So no way. This is never going to fly. I'm really big in the 50 to 65 year old Englishman demographic. And these people are never going to come to Discord. Right. I, I know, Nigel. I I know this was how close minded I was at the time. And he kept pestering, kept pestering me. We had an online meeting. This senior member of my community is one of my moderators is 15 years old and he shows up and he's in his gamer headset. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I in for? But he set up a server for me and started taking me for a tour. And that was the magic ingredient. And that's the secret sauce that I use in any meeting that I do with people is I bring them into a Discord server. We plop into a voice channel and I say, hi. And once you do that and you show people the magic and the different feel that it gives you, people are absolutely hooked. So I brought some senior members in my community over, people who were paying, you know, membership fees. And I said, hey, this is this is for you. 
if you like it, we'll move here. But if you hate it, we're not doing it. And within maybe three weeks, they were in love. They just adored the asynchronous nature of what was happening and how accessible I was for them. And the the way they were starting to get to know each other better, that was it. And I've been absolutely in love ever since. It's actually kind of gross. So what was that that process like? Because you were learning it as you were bringing your community together. So how did, what were the steps that you took to just get everyone involved? Well, I think asking people for their honest opinions is a very important part of that process. And we we pay a lot of lip service to this, like ask questions of your community. But honestly, I asked my people and I brought some of those people of which I'm very big in that demographic. And they they were hesitant, of, of course, but because I was asking them for a favor and they were already people who were invested in me, they were invested in what we were doing together. They said, okay, we'll give this a try and see what happens. And to me, the the organic nature of how Discord kind of works, it just, it grows on you without you even knowing. It's a little bit creepy the way that it it feels like you're in a house with all your friends and you open up a door in a room and you jump onto a couch and you're like, hi, does anybody want to talk? And suddenly you have people around you. That's the feel it gives off. So I, I did it slowly and I brought groups of people over people who I already knew were big conversationalists who were very invested and they established the culture. They started talking to each other and about the things that were important and unimportant in some cases, like the off-topic channel, which every server needs to have. And we just started from there and I let it grow. I tried not to make it too big and complex at first, Mm -hmm. although I'm a nerd. So of course I was like, hey, I want to make all these categories and channels and I know all the things people want to talk about. You can't do that. You have to let it grow naturally and people make their requests and then they feel ownership over creating the content that's going to fill those channels. So those were some of the things that I did. Awesome. And then so with because especially with you saying like discord for creators, what was the passion that started? Why did you think, okay, I need to help creators figure discord out? Because I am a creator. I am a content creator for Field Hockey Umpires and my on-camera journey, I was very much a writer before this, but when the pandemic hit, everybody turned to video in order to communicate and I started my live streaming journey and I found Doc Rock, who I've already spoken about with Alex, and I started learning how to refine the craft, how to practice, how to be consistent and those are my people, those wild, crazy bunch of people who are all trying to reach out and build their own communities. I thought, you know what? I am so excited about this platform. And I know it's not the only platform out there, but Mm -hmm. I love how this platform is working for me and my people. And I'm having so much fun. How can I not try to share this with uh, as many other creators as possible, because I want them to feel that. I know what it's like to struggle. I know how difficult it is to build an audience and try to build your numbers and figure out what kind of content they want. So to be able to have your people closer to you and be able to give that information to you and you get to know them and you figure out a lot of them are really awesome people and they're kind of your favorites. I want other creators to feel that too. 
And how important is, is community? Like from your definition and what you've seen, whether it be the field umpire um, community or discord for creators, how has that shift worked for you in focusing on community? Yeah, for me, it's been everything. It's, it is the piece because I'm in a field where I'm trying to help field hockey umpires perform their best because that's what we do in order to serve the game that we love. And when we can do that, we make amazing field hockey. So in order to, to, to do that, it requires a lot of support, uh, so much communication. And for me to be able to build a model under which I could do this for a living, I needed to figure out how I could monetize this. And you can't monetize creation, content creation in an educational field without having that that group of, as we all know, the Kevin Kelly, you know, super fans, the true fans, the people who really believe in what you're providing and also are investing back in you and teaching you how to do your thing better. I mean, I, I started a business in something that literally still nobody in the world does. There, I have no competition friends. There is nobody out there going, yeah, I want to be a field hockey online educator as well. I am alone. And to figure out how to do this, I had to rely on the people who I was hoping were going to find value in my services. So that's what community does for you is it, it opens that world to you. And I think that's the amazing part about your story. And I know you said you there may be some people who are watching right now who don't know your backstory and to go from such a niche, like how much more niche can you get in field hockey and then adding the layer of community, adding the layer of technology and your ability to make that work um, that's just as fanning out how much I was like, oh, see, this can show people that, okay, I'm in this lane, but how you can build it out to make it really work for you. And you mentioned monetization. Can you touch on that for us? Like, what does that look like for you? For me, it looks like having an integration between my WordPress site, which I built up myself and I'm, I love it, but it's a pain in the butt because I'm the one who has to administer the whole thing and I have to fix all the problems and update the plugins. And when things break, there's nobody else I get to, I, I can call. But that's the place in which I provide uh, sort of the backbone of my community, which is access to clips that I've made. Okay. So those clips have descriptions as to what I'm seeing and asking some questions and basically providing little snippets of information. It's kind of like... It, yeah, an encyclopedia of of hockey plays with umpires doing or not doing certain things in them. And that's all through my WordPress site. And then people play, pay a subscription membership there that I then give them customized roles on my Discord server. And they have access to different sections depending on what level of member they are. And in those different sections of the server, I provide extra things like better access to me and answering questions and the watch parties that I was trying to do in Facebook groups that never worked out very well. I can do watch parties where we sit down and we watch a match together and I talk over what's happening and then they're talking as well and asking me questions and we're having this amazing development group opportunity from any in the anywhere in the world. Uh, our mentoring groups where we meet in voice channels and we talk over what happened on the weekend. How did you do in your matches? 
you know, did you have any situations with players that you're concerned about? Was there a rules question you had? So we do all that. Everything I do, including teaching all my courses and workshops, I do that through Discord. And that means that all of my community members are staying within our community. And while we're in the middle of talking about something, if they check out a little bit, you know what they're doing? They're going to the off-topic section and sharing a joke with another one of the FH umpires third team, the FHE three T as we call it. And they're, but they're still with me. They're still with us. And I think that's the true value of discord is the way you can provide all those experiences in a customized way and keep people within your community. And I just wanted to bring in the chat a little bit because it's it's on fire as you're sharing all of these gem drops. Morgan Price says, great topic today. I didn't know Keely and I'm learning so much. Thank you, Keely. Also, David Paskin says, so happy to see you here. And thank you, David, because he is the one making that recommendation because we do as a community, we do use Discord and just thinking through some of those features because what I just heard from you as well is the ability to keep your community all in one place and to do to be able to as you said the the live streaming the watch parties and what are some of the features that you would like to see in discord the big thing that i want is an easier way to deliver courses so on my wordpress site i had previously been using a, a plugin called wp courseware and it provides that pretty standard experience where you watch a section of video and there might be a transcript below, maybe a little question, a quiz that you have to answer. Then you go to the next and you, you progress through the, the course that way. So for an asynchronous experience, that's something that Discord doesn't really have built in. But what's really exciting is now that Discord is being capitalized on by so many content creators and other kinds of businesses there are companies popping up out of the ground like daisies and they're making basically what I would call they're, they're bots, but they're overlays over top of the entire experience, specifically focusing on onboarding. Cause that's one of the, the real pain points of discord is the, the whole onboarding experience, especially for somebody who's never been on it. And these companies are providing this sort of uh, a, a web-based click here, click here, click here, give us a little bit of information type of experience. And now we're going to let you into the server and we're going to do it slowly. Those companies, I'm in conversations with a couple of them to say, can you use that sort of process to administer a course for me, for, for anybody, but really for me? And they're intrigued. They think this is awesome because they can see the possibilities of, of a way to serve a market that Discord is really starting to move heavily into. Awesome. And before we get to the panel and any questions that the panel might have, feel free to raise your hands there. There was also an interview that you did, and I loved where you said this line that um, this is going to grow organically, like just with your journey of figuring out Discord, that this is a this is going to grow organic directly to the proportion of the energy that you put into it. So anyone who's watching this interview right now and thinking, oh, you know, Discord looks great. I'm going to get started. What advice would you give to them of starting to build their uh, build out channels or create a Discord any advice that you would give being on the other side of it for these number of years now? Yeah, the number one tip, and this is going to be some tough love stuff, is you have to be willing to be in there. 
I'm not saying this is going to take eight hours a day, seven days a week, but you need to be prioritizing touching base. And it can be as simple as throwing in a Schitt's Creek GIF, which I do very regularly in my server, emoji reactions to people's other, you know, their questions, people who are answering other people's questions and you endorse that. I have this little trick in my server where if somebody's answering an umpiring question, they've done a very good job of it and I have nothing to add. I give them the maple leaf emoji. I'm like, yeah, that has the stamp of Canadian approval on it. (laughs) And everybody knows that I'm the only one who uses the maple leaf emoji and that's what it means. And people are like, oh, I got my first maple leaf emoji. And it's, it's, it's just one of those super fun, dorky things that brings people together. And they love that kind of experience. They love the gamification of it, which I'm sure we're going to talk more about. So be willing to be there, engage in the conversations, because what you're going to be getting out of all this is your, how much you're going to learn about the people who are there. You start figuring out what their faith pardon me, their favorite hobbies are, what their partner's names are, what their, what's been going on with their families lately, what their occupations are and their, their skill sets. And then you say, oh my goodness, I have a whole bunch of comp sci nerds in here. You guys are all going to learn Python and you're going to make some bots for me. This is going to be great. Who wants to learn about web three? And so you, you find other ways to get interested in these people and you're invested in them as much as they're invested in you. And that's, that's where community is. And what you just shared is like the human aspect of it. You're using the technology layer to support the human, the engagement. And and also you're from Canada. I also wanted to, to share that for those Hi, girl. who don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Alex Lindsay. We we obviously like Discord a lot. <laughs> so, but the uh, one of the things we we get challenged with with video is the number of people that we can add. What is the actual limits, or what are the workarounds once you start adding a lot of people um, to to a to a video stage? Yeah. So, what you're talking about, Alex, are the voice channels and. Throughout the pandemic, Discord added more and more capacity. They're on the Google Google Cloud platform in a number of centers. So there's very little lag uh, in most people's experience, but it is definitely tied to the individual's individual's, uh, upload and download speeds and things like that. But you could control those kind of experiences according to, for example, the level of person who comes in there. So if you have audience members, Instead of them being able to share their video, maybe they can't share their video. And you only have that for panelists. You only have that for hosts. You only have that for certain people. Or they have to stick up their hand and ask for it. You can customize that experience in order to make everything a little bit easier for everybody else. That's one possibility. There are stages. So that's a specialized channel that you can use for audio only. And people, all the social audio nerds are getting really excited about it because they're seeing it as an equivalent, a safe space for Twitter spaces, which seem to be really struggling right now. So there's a few different alternatives, but you can use permissions in order to make a experience that isn't challenged by numbers nearly so much. And kind of following up with Alex's question, what are some of the underutilized features do you see for on Discord where communities should be using them? Yeah, a lot of the newer things that have come out. Discord is 
they're very they're a very hardworking company. They they put out lots of features, and they're really kind of bad about talking about them. They make really cute marketing videos. If you go to their YouTube, it's just you're you're out in Wumpus Land. You're seeing all these funny characters and great tunes and things like that. But you're not really learning hardcore how these features work. Mm-hmm. So you may not really understand how, for example, the new forum channels work. This is something I think office hours could be using up to the hilt because those channels allow you to use it more like the old style bulletin boards that I grew up on, which allow you to have an original post and a series of replies that are all very nicely organized underneath that. They just introduced gallery view for forum channels. So it's a little bit more visually appealing and coherent for people when they go into that channel. And I think it allows you more flexibility in having a broader scope for that entire forum channel and yet still very tight conversations about each of the original posts. So that's one of the big ones. And I, I even have to remind myself to keep using them as much, but that's one of the central features in my FH empire server that is going really, really well. And Alex, do you use bots? And if, if you do, how, how do you use them? I do have bots. In fact, when one of my community members, so I, I had the 15-year-old who kind of really dragged me in, and then he had a friend who was 18, and he was the one who made my onboarding bot. So he made a custom bot for me that people could then select their roles, and they could request something, like they could request their membership role from me, and then I could deign to answer them and give them the little check mark, and boom, they'd be given the role and access to the exclusive channels. Now I don't use a custom bot in the sense that it's it's not that that young man's bot because he's in university, he's super busy. Um, I use Me6 is one of the most mm. prolific bots out there. And I use a custom bot version, but really it's just kind of a, a, a cute little overlay over top of that bot. And I use that to control a lot of the functions like auto moderation and... Um, not not memberships yet because I'm not allowed to use memberships because I'm Canadian, but that's one of the main ones. Uh, there's Sesh that I use very frequently, and that is for event planning. I can control who can see the event, who can RSVP to the event, whether they gain an extra role because they attend an event, and whether that person can then control whether they get reminders about the event and when. Very powerful bots. Um, Pingcord is one that can ping your YouTube live streams, your produced videos that you publish on YouTube or Twitch. I'm not on Twitch, but I know it can do that sort of thing. So there's a lot of capabilities out there, but I try not to get too, too many going, not because Discord can't handle it, but because I then start getting too intrigued with all of the, the nerdery of it. And I forget about that real human aspect. And that really the one thing that this server really needs is me being in there and talking to people uh, as as much as I can handle. So those are my thoughts. You're in the right place. (laughs) You are intrigued about all things tech. Yeah. So Keith, thank you for presenting today. I'm also a WordPress developer. Um, Why wouldn't you look at one of the courseware servers like Kajabi or or one of those to to have your courseware on, on one of those platforms? Because I have that whole clip library aspect and I've looked into Teachable and Hijabi and and all that sort of thing. And the custom rollout of the 
capabilities that I want to be able to provide to my members just aren't accommodated in that. So do I lose that aspect? Do I host that still on WordPress and then put my courses on Kajabi or Teachable and things like that? I mean, I'm aware that there is a lot of friction in putting people onto different platforms and I'm trying to keep it simple. What I'd like to be able to do eventually is have everything all on Discord for a while. And I'm one of those people who understands that nothing lasts forever. We all have to migrate. I get it. But if I can keep people in one place, that's going to make my community much stronger. And so I wasn't interested in trying to push people out to yet another platform with a yet another payment method where they would get further out of touch with me. All right. It looks like it's time to get into these questions, Bill. Our first one comes from Simon Ray in Shrewsbury in the UK. What does it mean when you accept the Discord friend request? What access or permissions are you granting the other person when doing so? That's a, yeah, that's a great question because it's not the same as Facebook. You don't get access to somebody's feed of, say, servers or anything like that. But what you do get is the ability to DM that person if they have turned off their DMs. So you can control who can direct message you on a full server experience basis or by individual servers. So you could be on a server, I'm on a lot of NFT servers, and you can imagine that you don't wanna have your DMs turned on in those servers. You want them absolutely turned off. So if somebody is your friend, you have given them explicit permission. Yes, you can DM me. They can also create a group DM with up to 10 people and you can all be in that DM together. And this could be your ongoing friendship chat that you work on things, or maybe it's a private work conversation that you don't necessarily want to have on the, on the work server for some reason. I'm not the judge of you, you know, so there there's those two capabilities and also it's easier to invite your actual friends to other servers. So that's one of the things that I use it for. You get many context menus throughout Discord where you can literally right click on the server and say, invite a friend. And the last person you talk to is the person at the top. And that makes it really easy to share different communities with people that uh, you think might be interested. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up, uh, how does mid-journey connect to Discord and move image data to Discord? Does Dif Discord have a specific API? Discord does have an API. What it does specifically with regards to Midjourney is something that is beyond my ken, I will admit. I do have the Midjourney bot installed on my FH Empire server, and I have a few of my folks playing around with it and seeing how it works and really it's a genius level marketing tactic to be able to add that bot to your own server so that you can then uh, get more familiar with it with a smaller group of people. I mean, Alex, you, when you told me about the 6 million, I hadn't even looked. I'd always assume Mr. Beast had the biggest server, but no, no, MidJourney has absolutely, they're crushing it right now. So that kind of experience even for me as a seasoned Discord person, I don't go in that server because it is a lot. But if I have mid-journey in my individual server, that means that I can play around with it with the people that I know and love the best and can have a lot of fun with it there. So I, I recommend that as a tool, but a great question, something that I can look more into later. Go ahead, Alex. One question about that. How do you add MidJourney to your server and how do you manage the costs if it's doing the renders? I think that goes straight back to MidJourney. You 
at it by inviting it. And that's that's the fun part about bots is it doesn't feel like you're installing a WordPress plugin. It feels like you're asking a friend to come over for a party. Um, so you can do that from the mid-journey server and you can right at the top of the of the user list, if you find the bot itself, you can right click it, right click on it and select add to server. And then all the servers for which you have management permissions, it could be either that you own it or you have administrator privileges, you can then select one of your servers and you can say, bing, yeah, please come over to mid-journey. And then you get the pop-up uh, web page that asks you if you want to award it the, the permissions that it needs. You give it the permission and boom, it's now in your server. So you're not, you're, and you're not paying for it. You, no. it, it's still, it's still using the same kind of beginner access, yes. whatever that's there. Got it. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Next question. Kirsten Osterkamp in Germany asks, what are your best recommendations, uh, for example, regarding organizing discussion threads and voting on Discord? Oh, good. Uh, as I mentioned before, I really think that forum channels, the implementation of that feature is one of the best things that Discord has done recently. I think that came in about four or five months ago. So if you haven't seen it yourself yet, uh, go have a look. Make sure that you have community turned on uh, for your server, and then you can go ahead and add your own community or your own forum channels there. That is is very helpful. I have, if I look in my own Ask FHU forum channel, I have a think about 80 posts now that are going, but it is very manageable because when a post is inactive, if someone hasn't commented on it within seven days is what the setting is, it just sort of falls off. It, it just hides itself. It's not truly archived because you can still read rejuvenate it by simply you could be doing a search and you could find this conversation and say, oh, wait, I have a follow-up on this. Somebody emoji reacts, somebody adds that follow-up question. It's now at the top of the list. It's now active. And there's no limit to how many active posts you could have, but it just naturally moves the conversations in ways that make it more manageable to see. So I think that's very helpful. I think they're more effective than threads, which are subcategories in a text channel. They work the same way with that auto hiding feature, but they just don't have that same feel. Uh, and they're a little harder to see once they've been hidden. So I think that's one of the, the best ways to organize that. And then what was this, the follow-up question? The yeah, last, go oh, go, go ahead. ahead no, no, go ahead, Bill. The last part of it was, um, what are your best recommendations regarding uh, discussion threads and voting on Discord? Oh, voting on Discord. Yes. There are, as you can probably imagine, a number of bots that you can use to help organizing voting. And I actually use Sesh, which uh, is primarily an event bot, but it has voting and polling built right in. Me6 has polling built in, and you can use that to set up your questions, have a time limit on the votes. You could re restrict voting to certain roles in your server so not everybody gets to uh, have a, a vote maybe on particular sensitive matters. And then you can export that data out as a CSV file or similar after the poll is done to have a look. But that that is a really um that is a really solid and and needed feature because it, this is all about community and you want their input on a lot of things exactly yeah next question 
Juan C. Robles in Mexico City, Mexico. Uh, what are your best practices to do moderation on Discord communities? There's a lot of layers to moderation. And one of the first is harkening back to what I said about when I started up my own server was establishing culture. And in order to do that, you want to start with a small group. A lot of people might start a server and think, oh, if I don't have 500 people in here within the first three weeks, it's a failure. No, it's not. What you want is to start quite small with the people that you trust the most. And they will start behaving in a certain way, your way, the, the way of your people, the way of your community, the way that they speak to each other, the respect with which they they converse, whether you allow slurs or not, or not slurs, sorry, swears or or things like that. Or are you a GIF heavy group? Do you allow stickers? I hate stickers, by the way. They're my least favorite things, but I love GIFs. <laughs> Everybody's got their own things, right? And the little thing about the maple leaf emoji, that is all culture. So you start small, you let your people go because new people who come into the community, the first thing a lot of people will do, not everybody, is they will look around. They'll poke into the channels and say, how are people talking in here? What do they say to each other? What kind of questions have I seen? They won't necessarily do a search because as we know on the internet, nobody does searching, but they will look at what's currently going on. So you want to start that culture, have it prevalent, and then your people who are very invested in you, the senior members in your community, Maybe I'm lucky because we're a bunch of field hockey umpires, so we're a little bit, you know, big on rules. We have no problems in my server about people following rules. Literally, it's like a dog pile if anything goes even remotely sideways. But you also have, in addition to the moderators that you are appointing very early in the process, before anybody else comes in, have your moderators set up, is Discord has a number of auto-moderation features built in. And they've been strengthening this over the last while. If you've read any of the news about criticisms of, say, alt-right groups being able to use Discord as a platform uh, before the Capitol Hill riots, how uh, the allegations that a lot of them were, a lot of the activity was planned on Discord, deep concerns for the company. And they have changed a lot of things and added a lot of features like Centropy to auto-moderate and look for certain patterns of posting and words and emojis and things like that that help you detect problems as soon as they happen. And you can set a number of actions to be performed or not be performed if something triggers the warning. And it could be everything from just hold that channel that person is is muted for five minutes so you can have a chance to look through the conversation and see what the context is, all the way to automatically banning somebody. So you've got a whole range of tools available to you, but I think the biggest strength is going to be coming from your people. You, you just touched on something because I was going to ask you if you have moderators like i'm on a lot of nft and web3 um communities and they that's one of the things they ask for of volunteers for moderators um do you have moderate are you so you actually said that so you have moderators for your community what do you look for in your moderators i look for people who are present who contribute and make sure that and when i say contribute i mean they actually give to other people in the community so when somebody asks a question like I don't know how to do this thing, or maybe they have a rules question. 
those people who jump in there and say, hey, let me give you a hand. I'm not sure what Keely's going to say, but this is what I think the answer is going to be, that sort of thing. You need to have those people. And those are the people who are going to suit your moderation the best. You also don't want to necessarily jump in too quickly with anybody. So have they been around for a little while? Are they members of your community who, for me, I found that my paid members tend to be the most invested people. Obviously, they voted with their dollars and they they want to get a lot out of the experience and they want to mm. make sure that their investment is protected. So they make fantastic moderators in a lot of cases. But I have I have a couple of 16-year-old kids from Scotland who are ridiculously funny. I absolutely adore them. And they're like my moderator. Well, I I, I don't want to say anything derogatory about them at all because I adore them. They bring that sense of humor and that perspective mm-hmm. that is a very good offset to all the olds like me. And they help me understand maybe what the kids are saying these days. How are they approaching things? And they give me pause and a good reason to take another look at some conversations and say, ah, no, that's chill. Everything's fine. So having variety, diversity is very important as well so that you can have all those viewpoints represented. And then you have your your absolute non-negotiables. I do not tolerate dragging of umpires ever. Mm. If you want to sit there and you want to say something negative about somebody else's performance, this is not the place for you. You get one warning and then you're gone. And I've never gotten past one warning. Awesome. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What would you say is the base level starting kit channels that will work with most Discord communities that span diverse interests? That's difficult. What what would be a full tool, tool set for a general interest? I think having a general text channel will always be important. A general voice channel that you can describe as whatever fits your your brand or your community, uh, a lounge. I call it the local because I have a lot of English members. And so we have a pub that we go to. It's our voice channel um, that people feel comfortable that they can just come in and hang out and socialize. Uh, an off-topic channel is very important. And I know this sounds ridiculous. You're like, Keely, we're using this for business. Why do I have to have off-topic? You need to have an outlet. You need to right away have a place where people know they can go and they can talk about uh the when is Ted Lasso going to be released? I don't understand why is this taking so long? They have a place they can go and give out that energy and find their people on other subject matter. So the squirrel channel, very, very important. Um, and then after that, really anything goes. A help channel is going to be important, but you have to be very specific that it's help for, say, your product, the way that your membership is served, how to get around the discord, that sort of thing. You want to make sure you keep it tight there because you don't want, say, questions that you're answering about your educational subjects going in a big help channel. Um, That's going to be big. Rules. Having a rules channel, and that is the first thing that people see when they come in. That is the only channel that at everyone can see if you have that open to, to anyone at all at the beginning. That is crucial to have because that is, it's not really that people are going to read your rules because they're not, but you get their explicit agreement. And then from there, they've clicked on a button that they then can be awarded roles that allow them to see a bit more of the server at that point. 
you automatically have a bit of a defense against bots, scammers, people who are looking for a zero friction way to access people for as little effort as possible. So those are probably the the biggest ones that I would say everybody should have. But after that, whew, you can do you can do anything that you want. Free for all. Thank you, Keely. Next question. Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Up next, best tip for Discord when you do not boost your server. <laughs> That's great because the first thing that comes to my mind is why wouldn't you boost your server? <laughs> no, it's boosting is important, I think, when you're running a business. And you want to be the person who who boosts your server. You don't want to rely on your community. I love my people, but I want them to be contributing their hard-earned money to what we do as a community, not what the server does for them. So I make sure I boost my server. My FH Empire server is boosted to level seven so that people get the best audio, the best video quality. That is very important in what I do because I'm showing matches, I'm showing hockey plays. I want people to be able to hear it. I want them to be able to see it and for them to have no issues with that. But if you're not in that kind of field, if you're not in gaming, if you're not in photography, if you're not in something where people are gonna be sharing their desktops on a, on a regular basis and it's more of, a, more of a social enterprise, you don't have to boost your server at all. Just, j- just don't and build the connections more. Just focus on the people. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Josh is back with, can you talk about bots? Why would we want one? And what do they do? Vendors to use or do you write your own? So as I mentioned before, I did have a custom bot made for me by an individual uh, in my community. And he's a fantastic programmer. And he's working on some very exciting projects that are all more important than my server. So when you are going to write your own bots, your own applications to run your server, remember that you are taking that into your own own hands. And it's just like developing your own WordPress website. If you are the kind of person that that is a big passion for you, you have a lot of time for it, you're ready to solve all the problems on a minute's notice, then writing a bot is is a, a great activity for you or hiring somebody to do that. I run businesses that require those bots to work. I need my onboarding process to work. I need my events to run smoothly. So I rely on companies like Me6, Sesh, Pingcord to do the essential things. And I know that because I pay for the premium licenses for those products, that when I have a problem, I can pop into their Discord server. I'm a member of probably about 30 bot servers Mm -hmm. and I can very quickly look up to find my answer or I can contact tech support and all my experiences with those particular bot companies have been very positive. So I definitely recommend me six. I think they're terrific and session pink cord are. Yeah. I think for me, they're the must haves in this, in this space. Go ahead, John. On the admin side, do you have the ability to discern whether users are using the web interface or the the Electron app? No, you don't have the ability to force that experience. And I've found that usually it doesn't matter too, too much until you get into the voice channel space and people might start running into issues with 
maybe the audio for certain members not coming through to them, like the mix minus is a little bit garbled or something like that. Yes, I watched that episode. It was very good, guys. Thank you. Um, so if if you're having interface issues like that, I found that the app is more stable and is is more reliable in that respect. So I just encourage it. And in fact, sometimes put up a little text overlay saying, download the app. <laughs> and that's that's all I do. Next question. Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri. How do you craft a good onboarding experience for new members that join your server? For example, do you lock channels behind roles or do you do something else? Yes. Door number one. That is the first step is to make sure to lock down your server from at everyone. And it seems like an undemocratic thing to do, but trust this is the basic first step that you have to do at everyone should only be able to see the first element that they need to access in order to click something, agree to something, communicate with you in some way. And then they can be allowed a role that allows them access to more of the server. And there's a number of ways that you can craft that kind of experience. And the exciting thing that's happening as I was talking to you uh, before is that there are I would call them megabots, I guess, that are coming out where people are using the Discord API and creating programs that people start on a web interface. And you can add features in this onboarding experience, like if you use Dots or Burb or Dowlands, where you can, as a business, for example, collect some more information from those people. Like, what email address do you use to is attached to your account with us. Can we have your name? Can we have these things? You ask for that information that then gets tied to their username and you can have that information before they even get into your Discord server. So you can build your own real estate property, which we all know the only pure real estate that you have is people's email addresses. So you can develop that yourself as a, as a content creator, as any kind of business whatsoever. So that if you do need to migrate, when you need to migrate, or you need to take other action, you have some sources of contact and you have a richer data set that you can serve your community better. So this is a very fast moving space. I know that next week in January, I think DOTS is launching very publicly with their subscription programs. Everything is changing very fast. So stay tuned. Something that you want to have happen, I bet is under development right now. John? I, I wonder how many corporations are blocking the the download of the of Discord within the corporate land. And then I suppose that most people just put it on their phone, right? That's probably the case. And I'm not really sure how many exploits I've heard of that would be a, a problem for corporate concern. Usually uh, any kind of exploits that come through are to raid the server itself and just disrupt and cause chaos. Or if you're in the Web3 space, people are trying to get your wallets. They're trying to get access to that so they can drain them and take your crypto and take your tokens and, and that sort of thing. I I don't know of any instances, but I'm if you guys have heard of them, I'd be very interested in hearing about it where that's been a security concern on the corporate side. Next question. This one touches a little bit on that. Douglas Carmichael asks, has you ever had any issues convincing upper management to use Discord because of the stigma of it being a gamer's product? 
Yes, many times. But I'll show them the statistics that Fast Company published a little while ago that in 2021, as few as, where where were the stats? That 30% of the people who were members of Discord were using it primarily for non-gaming purposes. By the following year, that number had completely flipped to 80%. The change in that product over the pandemic was radical. There's no other way to say it. To go from being this 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 gaming platform and then in in March 2020 everything changed for them and Discord being a privately held smaller company said all right let's do this thing let's see if we can make this into a platform that post secondary education and lower services can be provided to institutions and to students because after all that's where they are but the funniest part that i find about this whole gamer argument is do you know many people who are only gamers and don't do anything else in their lives you know gamers are multifaceted they contain multitudes they do other things they're into photography they have jobs they you know go out on the weekend and play ultimate you know gamers aren't just this this item they're people and they do other things so i would want to be where a very strong, vibrant community already is and be able to take advantage of those people as they're starting to get older because they are going to be the people who are contributing back to the fast-moving society and all the technological change that we're undergoing. So that's what I say to that. (laughs) You make a great point there. Um, The last statistic that I saw was Discord has roughly 150 million, like just the growth that they've had and the growth being that demographic, like how many people are using it for education. So, uh, and and gamers are human who love to learn. (laughs) Next question. Keely, you almost touched on this before. Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts says, similar to WordPress and other tech platforms, Discord servers are growing a growing target for bad actors. How do you stay on top of security and permissions? And are there any recent trends? Well, as I spoke of the before, the, the megabots that are controlling onboarding before you even get to the server itself, that's going to be a big step. That kind of friction is something that scammers aren't going to be super interested in trying to crack because they know that there is a more limited set of people behind that wall that they're going to be able to access because of the friction that they're experiencing. So that's one of the big trends. I think, though, that we're at a pretty dangerous point because there is there are a flood of people uh, arriving on Discord every day with the release of the memberships that are a built in feature now in Discord for people who are U.S. based server owners. A lot of content creators are going to be coming by with, you know, Marquez Brownlee being the poster guy for uh, that product, that's a lot of visibility. And a lot of people are going to start up serving, they're going to start up their own servers and they're going to do so without taking those basic precautions. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of low hanging fruit for those people. I know a few content creators who got really excited 
about setting up their own Discord servers. And I'm like, hey, Keely, come on in and see what I've done. And I walk right in the front door. I'm at everyone and I can see the whole thing. I didn't have to agree to any rules. I didn't have to click on any emoji reactions to prove that I was a human. There was no capture involved, no other kind of verification process. And I am scared to be in there. And I just try to very gently but firmly tell these folk, this has to change and you got to do it now. I know you think you're fine because you're only 50 people, but trust me, anybody can look up a discord.gg forward slash anything like that. That is the address for every server invitation. And it's not going to be long before all those low hanging fruit folk are going to get picked off. So don't let it be you. Next question. Tlaluk uh, Lopez Waterman in Norfolk, Virginia asks, I have found search to be problematic in Discord. How do you make search work for you? Mm, good one. Yeah, that, that's interesting because I, I'm not disagreeing, but I actually think that search is one of the strengths of uh, of Discord over top of any social media platform. And, and again, I, I don't believe that Discord is social. It's not. It's a community platform because it is inherently private in nature. So I have found that using the search operators to be a very effective way of cutting down and finding what I've needed. I've never searched for something and not been able to find what I vaguely recollect happened nine months ago. If I use proper terms. I think the most difficult thing is that it is text-based. And so I'm a big stickler in my server for people actually trying to spell words as best they can, but don't use slang terms because somebody might come in looking for that concept. And in my sport, you know, in, in many sports, other industries, there are many slangs. And I try to get people not to use that because I want the search to be more effective. And maybe that's the problem that's that's being encountered. But I'd love to have a conversation uh, about this with, with the question poser because I'd, I, I'd love to see what that is and be able to take that information back to Discord and, and see what they think. Next question. Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri. Do you have custom emoji in your server? And where do you go to make good custom emoji. I do have custom emojis because they're fun. Yeah. And again, this was one of those things that I thought at first, this is silly. I am a 50-year-old woman in Canada with custom emojis of little glowing things. And when you go to my server icon, my little whistle, it actually shakes. And then the little sound waves, you know, jog up and down because it looks like a whistle's being blown. It's ridiculous, but it's so much fun. So one of the places that I go to, I'm trying to remember offhand, there's a number of sites on the web that you can go to and say, how can I make downsize this JPEG or PNG that I have? Uh, and you can break things out. I've used tools like Keynote to animate uh, a product. That's probably something that's that's pretty popular within this group as well. In order to make that shaking uh, that shaking whistle, I used a couple of different phases of transitions and animation effects in and out and that sort of thing. And it's it's something that uh, maybe I should make a course on <laughs> because it sounds like something that people would be to be very interested in. But one of the biggest powers of custom emojis is to attach that custom emoji to a role. So when that person looks at their membership on the side, on the right-hand side under the user pane, mm -hmm. and they see themselves listed, and then every time they post, they've got their own special custom emoji, they are 
so excited. So definitely that's one of the strengths. And it's one of the, one of the reasons that you might want to boost your server a little bit, but you get quite a few spaces and slots available just by default. You don't have to rush into anything like that. Next question. Josh Kaufman is back in from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The office hours discord service would probably benefit from nested categories, but this isn't possible. What's the best way to give feedback to discord that nesting is needed for complex use cases or what alternatives would you suggest? Forum channels. Yet again, forum channels all over the shop. You have a community of really organized individuals who are there to ask specific questions. It's not that there are rambling topics and, and that sort of thing. People have concerns that can really benefit from being organized just as, as the question poser is, is positing. And that is perfect for forum channels. And the benefit to that is that you wouldn't have to have so many text channels. And this is, this is no shade. Don't, don't get me wrong, but with forum channels, you'd be able to have more general categories for each forum channel. And then people would feel more comfortable in asking their specific question, being able to find exactly the trail of thought that comes after that and all the follow-ups. I think I, I it's, it's definitely the way to go. Would Discord ever look at further nesting subfolders and things like that? Absolutely. They might do it tomorrow. Who knows? Because they implement feature changes just so fast. It's it's ridiculous. So uh, definitely give that feedback because if if that would truly be a benefit to more communities, then I, I'm sure that they would look at doing it. And I think this might be our last question because I'm just looking at the time, Bill. Uh, Guy Cochran in Seattle, uh, you touched on this before too, is boosting a Discord server worth it? Office Hours Discord server is so close to level three. Oh, so close. I don't think there's a ton of difference between uh, level two and three, although I know that I am the den of some very knowledgeable AV nerds. So maybe that extra audio quality would be of use. And oh, I, I see some shake, uh, <laughs> nodding heads in the audience there in the panel. So yes, th that would be a, a possibility. And again, it's something that for a business, I think makes a lot of sense to have internally and to have that within your control because you don't want necessarily a community member. Maybe they've come in and very generously donated three boosts to you and they've been boosting you month after month after month. And then suddenly that person, maybe their interests change and they float off another direction, take their boosts with them. And suddenly your server goes blue. Now we're down to level one, sad face. So in order to avoid that, I think that's something that you keep internal. You do that to yourself. You shut off that notification at the top. You don't expose that as being an option. And then you can just roll on providing great service from there. Keely, fantastic. Like we, we judge based on our pan, our producers and our producers have been asking so many questions and just the comments. Thank you for coming to visit and unpacking a lot of this. We want to give you the final word on Discord or what's next for you. Sure. I think it's a very reasonable reaction for so many of us who have been in the tech space for a long time to say, oh no, another platform. I've got to learn another platform. But think about my shame when I realized that I was that person, I guess, about 20 months ago who said, oh, I'm too old for this. 
And now look at me, give everything a try. If you're in this tribe, you're a learner. And I think that the things that you can uncover and the creativity you can inspire, and then the way the technology really fades away quickly and exposes the true thing that you're doing, the true activity of building community, that is what gets so exciting. So I'd implore you to give it a chance. And don't be afraid to ask questions of people who are more experienced in the area if you're finding something weird, because there might be a very easy solution like turning off default notifications. That's a good one to, to, to give a shot to. So that would be my biggest piece of advice. As for what's coming for me next, I don't know because Discord keeps changing the game every week. All of a sudden, built-in memberships, this is crazy. I actually, within three days of the feature being released, I was on Doc Rock's live stream and we built his memberships live. I'd never seen it before, had no idea how it was going to work, but we're good friends. And it was entertaining for people to watch us clicking around the options and trying to figure out what was going to work and making a few mistakes. You can do that in Discord. Don't be afraid to make some mistakes. Nothing's going to explode and nothing's forever. So it's a fun place to be. Get on board. And where can people find you? They can find me at discordforcreators.com. That will give you a link tree for all of the various places like the YouTubes and the, I don't go to Facebook for me. I I don't go there. Uh, My own Discord server, uh, that sort of thing. So Please, I am, my DMs are open everywhere. You can come in and ask me any sort of questions. And I'm starting a program, a program. I'm starting a live stream series next month. Uh, Yes, because it's still December, okay, COVID time. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to help people set up their servers live on live streams. I was so inspired by the work I did with Doc. And I thought I could do this more regularly and try to make it entertaining question mark. So that's what I'm going to try to do. So if you're one of those people who's interested and you'd like to do that live on YouTube, cut at me and we'll make it happen. Wonderful. Again, thank you so much, Kelly Dunn with Discord for creators. To our producers, thank you so much for your questions. I also want to make sure we've got a special guest coming up in After Hours on Tuesday. So you want to set your clocks for hanging out in After Hours. And tomorrow we'll be talking about mid-journey artificial intelligence for the rest of the schedule for the week. Head over to officehours.global. Again, producers, thank you. Panelists, thank you so much for your insights and contributions. And of course, our production team, our back-end team, thank you so much because without you, this would not be possible for us to be here each and every day. And it looks like we've traveled. I saw it. It was 60, is it 61,000 61,300 miles this show has traveled around the world. So we're going to get ready to head into office hours and we'll see you soon. Thanks, y'all. Dramatic foreshadowing. But I think someone said, do you know how to use Discord? I was like, I'm in 25 servers. <laughs> it's like it has a whole screen. Like there's just a screen dedicated where it just opens, sits there. And it's not just because I keep on churning out mid-journey. Telling the pro, the pro subscription worth every penny.
customize your server profiles. Do it today. What? Oh, update them. Great joke. Thanks. When did I stop whispering? 